Hi everyone, this is Working Title, the podcast where we, four intrepid, handsome, intelligent, and entirely fraudulent reviewers, watch and review IMDb's top 250 English language movies as of November 2019, going from bottom to top. So watch along with us, and... Money wins. Alrighty, and well, welcome back everyone to episode 49 of Working Title, uh, your favorite podcast that reviews the top 250 English language movies on IMDb. And we are back to our good friend Al Pacino this week, watching Scent of a Woman from 1992. Um, Of course, you know, like we mentioned, starring Al Pacino, also starring Chris O'Donnell, and one crucial point in the Hoffman Triangle, Philip Seymour Hoffman. <laughs> you sound very NPR today, Jack. I know. I'm really trying to channel it. Um, <laughs> 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 We're all going to blow out our mic saying that. I can already see mine clipping. Um, yes. So, Scent of a uh, Woman, famous uh, movie where Al Pacino says, Hoo-ah, about a hundred times. Um, it is... He actually won Best Actor for it, and it is essentially about um, a sort of, how do you describe, a medically retired uh, lieutenant colonel in the army who is blind after an accident, and uh, a high school student who is sort of uh, press-ganged, for lack of a better term, into being his chaperone, and gets forced to go to New York City and do all kinds of stuff, Um, and the ways they bond and the lessons they learn from each other along the way. So like we mentioned during this movie, uh, Charlie Sims are played by what's his name? Chris O'Donnell is supposed to just sort of like keep tabs and like hang around the house over Thanksgiving weekend to uh, make sure, you know, Al Pacino doesn't get in trouble or whatever, but he gets sort of a, uh, uh bullied into going to New York City, <laughs> where uh, Lieutenant Colonel Slade goes on what can only be called like a, a rampage of <laughs> prostitutes and fine dining and tangoing and re- really some Ferrari driving, and he's blind. Um, a rampage of fine dining. <laughs> I love it. <laughs> There's no better way to describe it. I am going to make that the title of this. <laughs> um, hookers and fine dining. So as a little introduction to the reviewers here in the studio, we're going to talk about what unreasonable demand would we bully our high school chaperones into if we were blind and in the circumstances of Al Pacino. Uh, I'll go first. My name is Jack. If I were a... Um, blind retiree trying to bully a high schooler into completely outrageous things i would make him do a put on a silent movie marathon just to fuck with him (laughs) 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 demand all of (laughs) (laughs) that you've spent most of your life memorizing so you could tell them what's happening at any moment and really freak them out (laughs) yeah absolutely like uh, just a just a rampage of Buster Keaton and <laughs> Charlie Chaplin. That's funny. <laughs> I don't have it down yet, I've, but I've got the whole podcast to keep practicing. <laughs> oh, God. Uh, my name is Mike, and I would do, I would, I would actually do everything 
that they did in the movie, but it would be after I already died. So they would have to weekend and Bernie's me throughout the entire thing. (laughs) (laughs) I like that one. She's like, this guy's dead. He's like, do it. He'll kill us both. He's great at the tango. (laughs) He's got a gun. (laughs) You have a gun in your hand. Just duct taped into your hand. (laughs) Oh. That's a good one. Okay. Be Charlie standing behind me going, hoo-ah. <laughs> <laughs> a ah ventriloquist. Hoo-ah. My name is Shane. And uh, <laughs> for my torment of a high schooler, I would um, see, I'd want to fight crime, but the problem is I can't see crime. So I would bring a high schooler who would point out crime to me. I would then go to try and stop it and have the high schooler fight the battle for me and discount vigilante justice. So you're like outsourced daredevil. Yeah, you're like diet daredevil. (laughs) (laughs) But I I want a high schooler that does not look like they can handle vigilante justice. So (laughs) I'll just go find where MS-13 is hiding and then throw them into the hideout. (laughs) You know, for being real... I don't think any high schooler can handle vigilante justice. <laughs> I'd be like, where are they at? <laughs> All right, well. All right, hoo I'm June. Uh, <laughs> yeah, I'd get, my, I'd get my high school chaperone and be like, hey, kid, do you know the story of William Tell? <laughs> <laughs> so does he have to shoot an apple off your head or you off his? Both. simultaneously but but june would throw axes (laughs) the old apple duel (laughs) trust me i'm great with a pistol very comprehensive list of activities the first thing we're gonna do is duel and we're gonna rob a bank (laughs) find me a high school worthy of dueling (laughs) oh I would all do right. all of our things. That's excellent. Yeah, the question is, in what order? I would, uh, I would definitely rampage some fine dining, <laughs> then shoot people on accident to include vigilantism, and then when I die, be drug around to do it all over again. <laughs> I guess that's the only order that really makes sense. <laughs> all right. Well, scent of a woman. Uh, what happens in this movie, Mike? Oh, so much. So much happens in this movie. Let me tell you about it. Well, that's good because it was so long. <laughs> All right. So the beginning of this film, um, we actually have the, the true plot that only takes place at the very first 10 minutes and the last 10 minutes of this two and a half hour film um, with Charlie going to school at a, a school called Baird, uh, which is like this prestigious um, all boys school, you know, uniforms and the whole nine yards. Uh, Charlie, he's on scholarship. He's from or- Oregon, uh, not Oregon. <laughs> and uh, he's from a poor family, and so he's like kind of trying to fit in with all these uh, rich, snooty other high schoolers. Um, these other kids, these you know, they're like the, the I don't know what you call them, the popular bully kids, the, you know, generic, um, spoiled, rich daddy kind of in there because of their family's wealth group of kids, right? And... Uh, they're, you know, they're going to go on vacation over Thanksgiving or coming up to Thanksgiving weekend. And uh, the new headmaster, whatever, shows up and he's got like some Ferrari or not Ferrari. It's a Porsche or something like that. Some nice it's car. A and jag. The, it, it, it's, it's just, just 
His headmaster oh. is not Jeremy Clarkson, though. <laughs> yeah, no. So they, uh, so they decide these, 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 you know, um, popular kids or whatever. They decide that they're going to pull a prank on the the new headmaster's car, and so they set up this, uh, you know, this uh, big water balloon thing with a bunch of paint in it to drop on the uh, the car. Um, however, in the meantime. Uh, Charlie and uh, one of the other, f- you know, group of friends. His name is George. He's part of the uh, the gang. Um, they're like at the library or some something, and they're leaving. And uh, they they happen to witness the the other three boys setting this prank up in the middle of the night. Um, this teacher shows up, kind of doesn't catch them, but sees that Charlie and uh, George are out there, and kind of talks to them a little bit. And the other kids, they're able to get away. Um, this sets up the uh, the plot of this whole entire film. The most important part of this film is now the headmaster is holding George and Charlie accountable as witnesses and telling them that they need to either confess who they saw or they're both going to get expelled from this from Baird. Charlie and George, they both deny that they saw anybody. And uh, the headmaster says they have until the end of Thanksgiving to either tell him who it was or they're going to get kicked out of school. And then uh, he also threatens Charlie and says, like, hey, you're like the poor kid. So you got more to lose. And if you don't tell me, I'm going to like take away my scholarship that I was going to give you to go to Harvard. And Charlie's like, no, I'm still not going to tell you. But he also needs to go like earn money to go home for Christmas. So in the meantime, instead of worrying about being kicked out of Baird, he goes to, I don't know, like it was a Craigslist or some shit. He like got this listing to go take care of some old blind guy uh, for this for this family. So he goes and meets with uh, the, the mom who's the same age as him even though he's in high school and she has three kids or two kids, whatever. And her, her uncle is the one that um, Charlie's supposed to be taking care of. And this is um, Frank, who's the who's a uh, retired lieutenant colonel in the army. Um, he's a dick and has cats. And uh, Charlie <laughs> meets up with him, you know, immediately establishes that he's an asshole and uh, doesn't want to really take the job. But this this lady like begs him to take it and she's going to pay him like 300 bucks or whatever. Just to take care of him for a couple of days and tries to convince Charlie that he's, you know, he's a sweetheart deep down inside. Um, Charlie decides to, to take the money and uh, decides to uh, take care of Frank for the weekend and, uh, you know, goes and meets up with him um, when the family's leaving to go on their little vacation. And uh, Frank is suddenly getting like packed up to go somewhere. Um, doesn't really tell Charlie where he's going, uh, but Charlie, for some fucking reason, I don't know why, decides to go with him to New York City to, I guess, guide dog him through this little escapade that he decides to go on this this uh, rampage of fine dining and prostitution. That's a good place to start. That's really the beginning of the film, and. Most of the substance is right there. The rest of it is just oboes and uh, tangoing. I will agree with you. The music in this film left something to be desired. A lot to unpack there. If you're going to have a three or sorry, two and a half hour movie, you better have more than three songs. They reminded me of Diet Lord of the Rings. <laughs> like I kept thinking like this is like a shitty take on the score from Fellowship, even though it came before. I don't know. It had a good what? like ni- 90s <laughs> vibe. Like this type of movie, like um, uh, what's the one with the the how you like them apples? Fucking oh, Goodwill Hunting. Yeah, yeah. That, it had like Goodwill Hunting vibes. It's not your fault <laughs> that he's blind. <laughs> it was his fault. Wait, oh, oh. wait, we got there. Anyway, uh, <laughs> yeah, this felt. I mean, I've I've talked about movies that have felt very seventies before. This definitely felt very nineties. Did anyone else get the feeling that this movie is? 
just kind of miscast. Like, I like the premise. I like the coming of age. It was a little long, but I had a hard time being emotionally attached to uh, Al Pacino and Robin. I don't know. They just kind of weren't. Al Pacino is kind of funny, but it was more like, oh, look at Al Pacino do his shtick. I thought Al Pacino was far and away the best part of this. Al Pacino's shtick like came from this movie. You know what I mean? I know. Maybe that's what's getting. He wasn't me. like this in Godfather, Shane. <laughs> <laughs> you know, I felt what? like this entire movie was a shtick. And in fact, I felt like the acting was so bad that, like, it it was. That's the best way to describe it. It was just all shticks. It's just shtick the entire time. Stay tuned for when Mike puts this movie at the top of his list. <laughs> yeah, I definitely I've seen didn't this one like Chris O'Connell. Like, I did not like him in this film. Um, I wish he was a different actor, but did I mention that that Al Pacino's character Frank was blind? Did I did I say that he's blind? By the way, for viewers who are wondering. <laughs> um, so let me deviate a little from Shane's point, which is just wrong. You're uh, wrong. <laughs> I, I I second this. Um, was the uh, the ad that he answered? Did it say he was blind? I don't know. I don't uh-huh. honestly don't remember him answering the ad. I just the movie just suddenly jumped to him being at this person's house. Okay, well at the school he answers a a bulletin yes. board yeah, ad. It's like a, and I don't, I don't know remember. if it said he was blind or not because I it was it took me like a good six minutes into that first scene to be like, wait, is this dude blind? <laughs> yeah, they they did a good job at kind of hiding that until he uh went to grab his uh John Daniels. Yeah. And uh <laughs> he like fumbled around. I was like, "Oh, he can't see." And then I was like, "Oh, I was right." Yeah, I thought this was <laughs> going to be like a weird like Book of Eli scenario <laughs> <laughs> where he was going to start beating people up and you couldn't well, figure I, out I, how many... I literally wrote in my notes like, "Is he blind? Is that the point of this movie? Is he was blind the whole time?" <laughs> Uh, yeah, I, I really like the writing in this. All the lines are really good. Like he's like crotchety. Kua. Yeah. Like that one. Uh, but he's crotchety, but he's not, um, uh, he's not old man. If that's makes sense. Like he's very, uh, charming and quick witted. And a lot of his responses are very good. But also in a way that does kind of give the impression that he's putting up a, a front. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so what I will say is I think uh, Chris O'Donnell, I don't know if I'd call him like a inspired performance, right? But I think he was pretty fitting for the role he was in. Yeah, just like out of his element, which his character was very out of his element. I think he's out of his element in every movie he's in. But Yeah, but we're, we didn't watch every movie he's in for this podcast. Oh, I wasted so much time. <laughs> well, I spent all okay. that time on NCIS Los Angeles. God, <laughs> damn it. I will say this. Let's put a pin in this topic because some of the trivia will kind of tie into this, okay. the casting <laughs> choices. Yeah. Uh, one thing I will say is I thought uh, Philip Seymour Hoffman and the douche crew did a pretty good job of being <laughs> shitty high school boys. They um, had the perfect bully haircuts for the 90s or whenever this was filmed. That is yeah. actually so true. <laughs> <laughs> like, just how do you want it done? Just run a comb right down the middle and just have it. All of it. <laughs> oh, okay. Jesus. Sorry, I fell down. <laughs> um, 
<laughs> the uh, <laughs> uh, I will say though, like for a a group of boys at a school who are you know all trust fund kids, they have a weird sense of morality about their headmaster getting gifted a car by the board of trustees as <laughs> their whole life is gifted yeah <laughs> yes and, and this and they're very um low-key for what i thought i thought it was gonna get very school ties-esque you know where you're like jesus but they were they were kind of just like average kids in a way they weren't really like out of the norm for how a like an average bad kid would act you know like oh no they play pranks on the principal it also felt so bizarrely constructed this prank they had right where it was was like this balloon that that was full of like i don't know shaving cream or milk or something disgusting that they would they had above the from the hanging from the lamppost above their uh the headmaster's parking spot and they just inflated it to bait him to pop it with his keys hell of a balloon where are you going to get a hold of a balloon that size with that tensile strength and then trust that it's going (laughs) to pop with car keys and the headmaster was so overtly villainous that i thought i was watching ferris bueller <laughs> right that headmaster dude that was he was some kind of moron that entire you know scene with him parking his car underneath it you can definitely see that there's a liquid substance inside oh, of it like if, if i'm down. looking at that i'm not popping it i'm like nope this is an ambush i know and th- this is just like Dealing with shitty teenagers 101 is like you just ignore it and send the groundskeepers to deal with it later. <laughs> right. <laughs> and the kids are like, they're announcing uh, on the, like the PA system. It's like he, he doesn't. I mean, how did he not catch these three kids? You know what I mean? Yeah. yeah it, it's like you couldn't figure out who got the middle of the PA system in the middle of the day. <laughs> it's it's very obvious that he dodged the draft because he could not spot an ambush to save his life. Like. <laughs> You know who didn't dodge a draft? (laughs) Al Pacino. (laughs) That's right. He went right at it. All right. Oh, man. So one one thing I do want... We can put a pin in this, but I do want to come back to it later is... Wait, let's take the third pin. Yeah, uh, just a series of pin after pin. I I have Um, a question, too, once you're done. Yeah, we'll we'll hand you the the pin in a minute. Shane, put a pin in that. (laughs) (laughs) Put a pin for your pin. How many Um, pins do we have just... Just for so I can keep track. <laughs> so, w- what else? The way I'll phrase it is that all four of us have had cause to piss off someone in the army at some point or another, <laughs> and <laughs> the uh, that I I feel like the mannerisms of uh, Al Pacino as Colonel Slade were like always writing this line just a little bit too far and back into realism of like the most obnoxious retired colonel you could imagine. So I do just want to hear people's take on just the whole character at some point. You do bring up a good point. <laughs> it's always a colonel. Yeah. It's, it's like, like no one's ever met an officer. That's like, the trope. Like every single movie that has some like crotchety veteran, it's it's just always a colonel. I love yeah. that. Through, halfway through all of his speeches that have nothing to do with the military, he suddenly throws in there some kind of thing about his service. Oh, so you have met a veteran. we'll get to it but his speech is about like greater men than you have rendered me that courtesy and it's like oh my god come on man and and this kid really belongs in this school and my friends died with their face down in the mud (laughs) i know he was like fucking walter from big lebowski and then he kept changing what his mos was the entire fucking time (laughs) 
I'm like, wait a minute. If you went here, you wear this, but you were put here. I was like, what? How many titles did? God. But turns out at the uh, the very end when right, you know they always have the, like the post script. You know, turns out Lieutenant Colonel Frank was actually uh, stolen valor and never was in the military. He never at all. was in the military. <laughs> <laughs> That's the interpretation of this. I would buy in a heartbeat. Oh yeah, uh, my the the whole thing about how he was on the short list for general for Lyndon B. Johnson, but got passed over. I was like, man, you got passed over pretty good. Cause there's an extra step between Lieutenant Colonel and general. A hundred percent. Um, yeah. On your point, like the, it's always the fallback of people to be like, Oh, they were an officer. They are an officer. And I'm like, the reality is if he was this badass that did all these things, most likely he was a Sergeant major or on the enlisted side. Cause if he was an officer, the only things that made sense were he had dinners and he's really good at writing. Like, <laughs> I, I, I do, I do also distinctly remember uh, Lieutenant Colonel telling me he could throw a hand grenade over half a football field. So, <laughs> <laughs> and in reality, if he was an officer, he wasn't playing a game when he didn't know the pin was out. He just legitimately had never held a hand grenade before. <laughs> was playing we'll with that. It. <laughs> but since you're bringing it up now, that's the silliest goddamn backstory that came out of left field where he was juggling hand grenades and that's how he lost his sight. <laughs> what? Oh, we'll get to the dinner because I have Who a whole this? thing about this. But um, what's your other thing to put a pin in, Shane? Well, shit, I had a pin in it so long I can't remember my <laughs> pin. Damn it. Wait, the pin was in the grenade, Shane. <laughs> oh, no, it wasn't. That's the problem. <laughs> oh, oh. It has to do with the uh, principal's ultimatum if, when we are all ready to get oh, that. Oh, yeah. Well, yeah, what kind of bullshit is that? Like, I know you have nothing to do with this, but if you don't tell me who fucked up my car, I'm going to kick you out of my school. Like, what a dick. That <laughs> whole thing is like, he's in there, he's like, two-thirds of bad men go to Harvard, and I have to write one extra letter. And I'm like, assuming that Mr. Sims here has a good GPA... I would take my chances that I'm not going to be in his one letter and I'm going to go with the two thirds, like the 75% of the student body that's going to go to Harvard. Yeah, it's pretty good odds. Like, <laughs> wait, Shane, did you just say two thirds is 75%? Jesus Christ. <laughs> Shane is definitely not one of those two thirds. <laughs> He's one of the unlucky 25%. I was like, damn it. <laughs> I had a 13% chance of getting into this thing. It was a sure thing. <laughs> oh, man. Hoo-ah. We can cut that, right? <laughs> oh, shit. 60% okay, well, of the time it works every time. <laughs> I should have left the pen. Is this going to be one of those things where Mike just finishes the plot and when we talk about it? Considering oh, how much yeah. shit Mike has talked on this, I think so. For how long this right. movie is, there's really not much. So, All right, go go for it, Mike. Okay, here we go. <clears throat> so, Frank, uh, he takes Charlie to New York City, right? And they go and they stay at the, the, the Waldorf Astoria Hotel. Um, which is this really ritzy, fancy place, right? And the, you know, he has a, he gets like a tailor to come in and he's, you know, he's kind of coaching Charlie a little bit on his issues back at school, but mostly he's just concerned about, um, having a, you know, a big, uh, blowout party, so to speak. Um, see, uh, he takes Charlie out to this, uh, the Oak Room, which is this, um, I guess like some, 
high-end restaurant that's in New York City. And and uh, while they're at dinner, uh, Frank reveals that his plan is to um, have some good food, drink some good wine, uh, slay some good, and then uh, blow his brains out at the end of this entire or- ordeal, um, which Charlie, uh, aghast, says don't. Um, anyway, so after they're done having their, their, their meal and, the, you know, they get all that stuff, they, they go back to the room and uh, Frank um, follows through and everything I just said. They do it all. They, you know, have fun in New York City and party a bunch and Charlie's along for the ride with it. And um, uh, they show up at uh, Frank's brother's place for Thanksgiving dinner. And while they're at this dinner at Frank's brother's place, um, Frank is, you know, himself and is talking about ladies and I guess the whole thing about Frank is he's a he's a womanizer and he, his favorite thing in the world is women and he loves smelling them and he and he loves being around <laughs> them um, and he loves telling stories about them inappropriately in front of family at a Thanksgiving dinner and it leads to the point where the nephew uh, kind of calls Frank out on his bullshit and how he's being a dick and he explains the story about how Frank went blind because he uh, was juggling hand grenades and didn't put the pin back in a grenade or something like that and it caused him to go blind um, when it exploded. Uh, anyway, so that's how he got kind of kicked out of the military or discharged because of medical reasons, I should say. And um, they leave after uh, Frank kind of defends Charlie's honor because this dude keeps calling him like Chuck or something like that. Anyway, so we have to see this bonding between Frank and Charlie. And then they leave. Let's see here. Notes. Uh, they go and they get a Ferrari and uh, they drive this Ferrari around New York City and, and Charlie thinks it it might be a good idea to let Frank uh, drive the Ferrari <laughs> blind and he does uh, he might as like you know get pulled over and talk his way out of it um, Frank gets to the point where he's he's completed his bucket list and he gets his gun out gets all dressed up in his dress blues and uh, Charlie comes in the room catches him right before he kills himself and there's this kind of you know struggle between the two and Charlie manages to get Frank to kind of calm down and not kill himself. Um, honestly, I don't remember what he said to him though. So convincing, but Frank decides not to kill himself. Um, so they're done with the, the big weekend and, uh, they've missed their flight back to New York city and Frank never had a return ticket anyways. So they, uh, they get their limo driver to drive them overnight back to school. So Charlie can go back for his, uh, um, his hearing, his, you know, re- repercussion hearing or whatever, court hearing for his seeing people outside at night at the school. Uh, so they drive back. He shows up just in time. They go and uh, start the proceedings. Um, George is there. The whole student body's there. And George is there with his dad now. And, and you know, Frank was kind of warning Charlie throughout the film that George is fine. George has a trust fund, and he's gonna he's gonna get to Harvard on his dad's dime, regardless of what happens. And Frank kind of was telling Charlie to like kind of snitch on him the entire time. Um, during the the hearing or whatever, um, Charlie Charlie's up there all alone. But then uh, Frank shows up. He actually didn't leave and and go back to uh, his house. and And he comes in and and he sits with Charlie up on the stage while they're doing the hearing. Um, the principal he questions. George, George, George of kind the of squeals a little bit and says that. Uh, thank you, no. Jack. Um, and that's why uh, he keeps hitting trees. It, that uh, any any comments <laughs> good right now? You guys throw in your your two cents. Um, George of the Jungle swinging in trees kind of squeals a little bit on the three boys that were doing it, but for some reason it's not enough evidence for the uh, the principal, and so the principal turns back to to Charlie and you know threatens him again, and Charlie's 
he doesn't he doesn't snitch he he, he doesn't want to get stitches so he keeps his mouth shut and um, the principal says well I don't have enough evidence from George who said these three kids names and you didn't say anybody's name so George is off the hook and I'm gonna kick your ass out and that's when uh, Al Pacino who was his way into everybody's hearts and uh, <laughs> and just convince the entire uh, faculty staff that being a snitch is bad and he's not a snitch so he's good so that he can stay in school and they all agree and George's he George doesn't get any credit which I don't know credit he was gonna get and uh, the other boys are on probation and Charlie gets to stay in school uh, and then uh, he gives Charlie 300 bucks <laughs> Hoo-ah. Hoo-ah. Hoo-ah, indeed. All right. Um, good good movie. <laughs> so, we're, we're, okay. Um, <laughs> so, right, which pins are we going to unpin here? He, <laughs> someone else start. I'm just rambling. I, I have a gripe. Really? <laughs> Does it, do we really need to see the entire fucking tango? Oh, I forgot about the tango. Yeah, at one point, he they meet a girl and, uh, he uses a super scent ability to tell her what soap she's wearing, and that's, like, attractive. And then they tango on a dance floor. Why is that an attractive quality that they try to portray throughout this film? The entire film, Robert De Niro is sniff- sniffing every single woman. Al Pacino. Across- De Niro so, yeah, would have been better. <laughs> that's who was missing. It should have been De Niro. <laughs> As the high school kid? Yes. Uh, sorry. Frank is sniffing women, like, across, you know, the, the East Coast. And getting away with it. Hi there. I smelled that you were alone. <laughs> I know I smell like whiskey and cigars, but you smell great. <laughs> yeah, that's my new uh, pickup line is I want to go around to random women and just start naming random perfumes until one of them hits. <laughs> oh, the worst part about the film is that is after the, the, the hearing or whatever, and they're leaving, and then just some character that we haven't seen in the entire film runs out after Frank, and she's like the political science teacher, and they and like because like Frank was bitching about not having a wife, and he's like, I wish I had somebody to be with. Um, if he should stop horn dogging and sleeping with prostitutes, it might help him. But anyways, this lady comes out and she's like, I'm really interested in you now. That was did, did you guys feel that was necessary at all for that woman to show up there? So. I think well, it wasn't. I think it was necessary to a point, right? It needs huh. to be that like introduce, uh, introduce a person that is conveniently of uh, his age, mm-hmm. you know, and like let the viewers realize like, hey, this is might go somewhere, but don't outright be like, you know, they're fucking in love now. You know what I mean? Yeah. Yeah. I guess they needed something so that we would think that. In the next scene after credits roll, he's just not going to go back to his little house and shoot himself there. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> it should have been uh, the girl that he tangoed with at the very end. He, like, pulls up in a Ferrari, and he's like, she loves the Ferrari. <laughs> drives off. <laughs> God. So what I'm going to say is just in general, I feel like the entirety of the strength of this movie is Al Pacino and the rapport between the two of them. The writing, the writing is at its best in like the small moments when those two are talking to each other. And then everything else is just like, we got to hit a plot point. Mm-hmm. So it's, it's almost all on the performance because, okay, let's be real. Uh, that speech to the disciplinary committee was 
Charlie's not a rat. I, I and couldn't if you tell you what he did at all. <laughs> you're right. You just end up with like, what? Yeah, and it's like, who is this person waiting? And they all give a standing ovation, right? He, he's pretty much saying like, Charlie's got honor. And this little shit doesn't. And he makes like some some pretty good jabs, right? But none of it adds up to like a convincing argument that so, would change anything. So I really like the speech. It was uh, it was the t- the typical movie ending, you know, fucking giant climactic speech, right? But it, it's like you're absolutely right. It's one of those like if I was on that review board or whatever, and be like, wow, that was very moving. Anyway, back to the facts. Yeah, um, <laughs> yeah right. Like back to our bylaws. <laughs> yeah, and like so when Charlie, when you know the the other sort of climax of the movie when Charlie um, has like this confrontation with uh, Colonel Slade and says like, hey, don't shoot yourself. Also, don't shoot me. Like it's emotional. But, like, what was the content of that? It's like, <laughs> did, did he persuade him with, like, the words that were written and spoken? Or did he persuade him because the the movie dictated that he needed to be persuaded? And then they just said the things convincingly and off you go, right? Like, it, it feels like this entire movie was an exercise in hitting the right plot points. But yeah, it was super well acted. Al Pacino was so good. Yeah. yeah. I, I think what we're coming at this because i was thinking i was like it is a good movie it's we're watching like the the quote-unquote best movies of all time so you're you're looking at it through that lens and i feel like it was a good movie but i don't feel it was like like transcendent i don't let me uh let me throw this past you to rewrite this film the way i thought it was going the way it should have gone in my opinion um al pacino you know, spending all this money or whatever, he like saved it up. What do you say from his, uh, yeah, his um, medical disability checks, checks or, or something like that? Yeah. Turns out Al Pacino, he is Frank is actually uh, a, a, like a millionaire, right? And Charlie goes out and does this weekend, and then what would happen in reality is he goes back to school, gets expelled because you know he's not a snitch. Uh, but then Al Pacino, Frank passes away, and then suddenly check arrives Charlie's house for. You know, four million dollars. You know, problem solved. Charlie earned it by becoming his mm. adopted yeah, child uh, throughout the whole the whole little bonding experience. You know, Frank had no kids. Al Pacino he, writes a letter to his best buddy Lyndon Johnson. Yeah, he gets <laughs> he gets expelled from Baird, but accepted into Harvard because of the letter because wreck of, because from of Pacino, or because of Frank. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Good yeah movie. I like I like Mike's version. Yeah, I I do That's too. A lot better. Shane, tell us what you'd do with this movie because we need to balance out the good ideas. <laughs> he goes into the hotel room and he goes, Charlie, I really have to kill myself. The amount of debt we have run up on this weekend is crippling. I don't have any money. <laughs> how, how did he win over the tax or the limo driver? Dude, that guy so- was like, he's like, I'd go to hell for you. <laughs> I want to see this movie remade from Manny's perspective because that man is the hero of this film. It'd only be it'd only be bits there. and pieces of what's happening. They'd, they'd be getting in the car talking about prostitutes, and then the next thing talking about Charlie's getting kicked out of school. And he drove from what New York to Boston. Yeah. <laughs> like, good lord! On a one-way fare. 
Yeah. Oh my god. I know. So when he gives him that handsome tip, he's like, "Yeah, that's actually what was owed." So. <laughs> and that, and the limo sat outside of that that dinner, the entire Thanksgiving dinner, all night, just sitting in the driveway. Yeah. What about that's his family? <laughs> his family is the road. <laughs> Can we uh, talk about the dinner with his brother? Please. Yes. Okay. I th- yeah. So let's talk so about it. First, I go with. I originally thought, oh, the goal of this dinner was he's going to meet his brother who he's been estranged from. There's going to be some tension. But, like, this is the beginning of the healing journey, right? Instead, it devolves into he tells everyone to fuck their wives more and, like, gets in a fight with his nephew. Granted, if you're going to have him freak out, maybe not have the nephew be so awful that the audience is hoping he gets choked to death. Like, right. Like how he's telling a story about having a three-way at the very beginning. And I was trying to understand what was... Like, I understand the family rolling their eyes and being like, Jesus Christ. But, like, the nephew goes hard at him with almost little to no provocation. Like, his responses to the nephew are because the nephew is coming at him. Like, there's... But we have no context, really, for why. But go ahead. I think that scene was a vehicle into itself of uh the downfall of frank because up until this point we really don't know what happened and why he's all depressed and you know gonna kill himself and shit Mm -hmm. um so i attribute the nephew being the way he was because of presumably you know decades of maltreatment or whatever right like there's some brother i I mean either way right like somebody had to do it but i think in the way that he tells the story and the fact that frank doesn't like get angry in that moment right he just takes it and he's just nodding in agreement and like correcting little bits of the story about how fucked up he was mm-hmm. um and i think that says a lot to uh his character and hit the emotional strain that he's gone going through I don't know if it's supposed to be this way, but I didn't feel any sympathy for Frank throughout the entire film. Like, his biggest downfall in his life is he's depressed because he can't see lady parts anymore. Like, that's his, <laughs> that's his thing. <laughs> this, this horny alcoholic goes on a rampage around New York City. Like, I don't have no, any sympathy. See, if that was in the title, I would have been in, but... <laughs> Yeah, I think the idea is it instills some empathy from uh, Charlie in that scene. Because otherwise, now it's just some psycho old guy taking him on a fucking wildly age-inappropriate trip to New York. (laughs) Yeah, I I would say that scene is where, throughout the film, that's the first person throughout the film that stood up for Charlie. Yeah. True. True. Like, even his deadbeat dad back in Oregon... You know, it doesn't get along with them. <laughs> I liked it overall. I just feel like there needed to be, like, tiny tweaks. I don't want to say it was over the top, but it just wasn't tight. This movie didn't feel very, like, efficient. With it was <laughs> loose as hell. Um, I feel like this belongs in, like, a... There's, like, a certain category of movies where I feel like they're not identical by plot, but they all feel the same to me mm-hmm. there's a uh, scent of a woman there's the king's speech there's rain man and i'll even toss in a little bit of ferris bueller's day off where there's like the 
I don't know, someone overcoming something, right? And there's, you know, their companion, they're kind of like duo movies. And, you know, like, does this kind of make sense what I'm getting at? Well, all of these movies, like, they're not, they're not point by point the same, but they feel like they're all like cousins. Oh, we could go through a laundry list of introduce protagonist who is not doing well in life. Maybe they're feeble and they have a coming of age through an old man or like mentor that wants to relive their glory days. And through that, they come of age. Yeah, it's like kind of vibe. And it it feels like this movie is more about like the sort of general vibe than anything that actually happens in it. Except Charlie didn't really change at all from the beginning to the end. You know, he I thought he was going to go back and immediately just be like, you know what, Frank, you're right. Fuck those guys and go back and snitch on him. But he didn't. (laughs) You you know, he stayed true to himself the whole time. Yeah. Yeah. So there's this whole plot point of like Frank's reversal that I'm not entirely sure I'm on top of where initially Frank is like, yeah, rat those guys out because I'll rat you out in a heartbeat. And then he gets super pissed off at him for considering it and then comes in to support him for not ratting them out. So well, there's a, the, the deviation from what you were saying, Jack, of the this flavor of movie, I see it as more of a character development of uh, Frank than, than Charlie. Well, it is. Yeah, yeah. Like, it, but, and... He even self-admits, right, with the whole crossroads portion of the speech uh, to where he was, he always, like, chose the wrong way. And that the whole time, he's that's what he's preaching to Charlie, like, fucking rat him out. You know, the world is out to get you kind of shit. And then through the climactic moment and then at the end, we see that Frank has developed, even though we're expecting him to have, like, Mr. Miyagi Charlie into developing a reverse miyagi yeah a reverse miyagi (laughs) but that's that's also ferris bueller right like the movie's about ferris but really the person who develops is cameron right um but yeah i I guess it's that evolution where i'm like i feel like i was like wait oh oh okay i was like wait a (laughs) second did i miss a character Yeah, I, I if we had to swap two duo casts of movies of this type, I would 100% swap uh, Matthew Broderick and whoever that guy was into this one, and I would 100% put Al Pacino and what O'Donnell, Chris O'Donnell, or whatever his name is, <laughs> into Ferris Bueller's Day Off. <laughs> you know, Frank doesn't need to really worry about killing himself. That that uh, raging alcoholism is going to catch up real yeah, quick. That's, he's yeah, that's probably of the close. <laughs> I love how like his family that he stays with are just like, eh, we just we just water it down a little bit. <laughs> yeah, and like their house is like kind of run he down. Four a day, more like four hundred. <laughs> like that's still the nineties is when you can still joke about alcoholism. <laughs> I, I don't. I like the whole man. This movie is so like on the fence. Mm-hmm. It's like the writing was so tight scene to scene but there everything in between was so bad <laughs> yeah i mean the writing in the the close personal moments was good but in yeah. like the big moments it, i feel like well i mean it's it's like that speech at the end where i'm like this is an awesome speech what the hell does it have to do with anything yeah <laughs> well, in- well it's like 10 separate writers like the best writers in hollywood were hired to write one scene 
and then somehow later on they had to figure out how to tie them all together. <laughs> they, I feel they, like got, they got those writers, and then they brought in the the National Lampoon to write the rest of it. <laughs> <laughs> I I feel like you could have substituted in the speech from Independence Day and had Al Pacino deliver it, and it would have made no difference. That would have been awesome. <laughs> <laughs> I know <laughs> it would have been awesome, and it has nothing to do with the plot. That's the same as this speech. Yeah, and and he, his when Al Pacino Frank like makes amends and stuff they never show him make amends to his daughter who he's really mean to the whole time and they don't really demonstrate the redeeming qualities of him because like there's like oh he was terrible or whatever but he did like there's no like i want to call it like a spine to him where you build off of it like it's just like oh he's all shit and now he's nice to his granddaughter like they didn't give him a moment to show us, like, oh, he he really cared about his daughter. Really, they not desert. That's his. That's his niece. That's his niece. Yeah. Um, oh. But I mean, well, I feel Never like mind. I appreciate that <laughs> they showed that he was just an asshole, right? Like he's he wasn't really an asshole with the heart of gold. He was kind of just an asshole. <laughs> yeah, um, <laughs> he really wasn't a good guy. Yeah. Yeah, and I mean, I I feel like it was nice that he kind of got a new perspective you know or a new lease on life but i i also appreciate that it's like well you know he was really just a dick to start with right which makes him more of an interesting character right instead of a guy who's like an awesome guy who's on you know down on his luck and going through hard times he's just like yeah this guy's kind of a dick and he's you know kind of put himself in this situation and other people treat him the way they do because of the way he kind of treats himself and treats them. So I do, that makes I it do, a little better. I do feel bad for him in one way. And that's that because he didn't go through with his plan, he did blow all of his money. Well, I oh, mean, he wasn't he's, using it. He's got to like be broke. broke. Yeah. Like, I don't know how much money he had saved up, but it's gone. <laughs> um, But I think his character needed a little more like that heart of gold where you can see the glimpses of the good person. I, it seems only there with uh, Charlie as it gets pulled out, but I, I don't know. I, I feel like there's something slightly missing, and I'm having a hard time pointing directly at it, because I, I think it's more cumulative than it is. But I think the instead of treating it like one character's linear arc with the other supporting it, like their arcs, both of them kind of cr- intersect at certain points, and it's really like the ups and downs of both of them. I think. Yeah. So it's 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 hard to say like one of them needs to be that mentor character or the person being developed or otherwise. Um, I think it. I think that dynamic played out okay. Yeah, I don't. I feel like it's just almost like endemic to this kind of movie where I feel like we had a conversation in Rain Man about like how weird and exploitive it was that Tom Cruise <laughs> was like like getting his brother to like gamble to make a bunch of money <laughs> so he could do whatever. Or how we talked about how the King's Speech was like a little, for, for as heartwarming as it was, it was a little bit like hollow at the core, you know? I feel like it's just kind of like that where it's... I, I think I'm on the same page with you, June, where it's like really impressive and really good, like moment to moment, but it's all just kind of like piled on top of each other rather than constructed into something. Yeah. Yeah. June, about put it Charlie best. Pulling, 
pulling Frank out of his funk by offering him a car ride. <laughs> I guess it's I like won't kill myself now. You want, you want to go for a ride, boy? And then <laughs> I mean, that, yeah. that whole Ferrari scene made little sense to me because the guy's like, no, you're you're not getting this Ferrari. Neither of you can afford it. And he's like, but I'll give you two grand. And he's like, sold. <laughs> <laughs> the commission from the car would have been three times as much as that. Like, I, I feel like, so there's all these moments where, you know, Frank persuades someone. I don't feel like any of them were persuasive, right? Like, he he's berates uh, uh waiter into letting charlie have a beer for mentioning he knows someone and he always knows someone and uh which i feel like sort of stretch limits of plausibility for me right like okay cool like a lieutenant colonel is fairly important but new york's a big place right and i don't think he's been here in a while what if they Um, went reverse big fish and all his stories were false He hasn't done any of this shit. He's just been a crotchety old man in the backyard. For Charlie carries him down to the river and he just kind of <laughs> sinks away. He becomes a small fish and swims away. <laughs> but, like honestly, that could be like semi-plausible. Like that waiter, for instance. Like, what if that guy, you know, hadn't worked there in uh, ten years, and he knows that, but he just like doesn't want to deal with this fucking psycho old guy. <laughs> It's yeah, like, but I don't it's get paid enough for this. <laughs> if it was one time, it would be one thing. But then, like the police officer, which he somehow like cons into thinking he's not blind by I don't know. Yeah. <laughs> oh, I, I don't know how he persuaded that police officer. Oh my god! Yeah, he does. Also, he's like, "Do you have your license?" He's like, "No, it's at the dealership." He's like, "Okay, you're free to go." Yeah. Oh, that's <laughs> totally fine. The girl that he, she's like, who are you? And he's like, you smell nice. She's like, oh, thank you. (laughs) I I, I am going to give Al Pacino credit for this. He is a lot more charming than you are when doing whatever that impression is, Shane. (laughs) (laughs) That's what I've been doing wrong. I just keep doing that impression. (laughs) Now, I mean, I will say throughout the whole thing, Pacino's character and the way he portrayed it, there was an element of charm to Frank. Oh yeah, Agreed. even though he's a raging asshole, you're still like, oh, you know. <laughs> he was he was really nice to all the service staff. Except <laughs> when he's telling them to serve minors. Yeah. All right, t- time for the age old question: If Frank kills himself, does Charlie still get three hundred dollars? Doubt it. <laughs> he has to go back to his brother and be like, "So I was owed three hundred bucks." So. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, imagine how shitty the situation is, is Charlie, where he he can't really stop Frank from going to New York, right? And, unless he, like, physically detains him. And he's just, like, a, a 17-year-old, so he's not, he's not going to do that, right? And yeah. then he goes along, and this guy's threatening to kill himself, and what's, he's just going to be stuck in New York. Frank ate the phone numbers. <laughs> he's just going <laughs> to be stranded there and it's not like he wants to be the one to make that phone call right um it's like yeah i'm babysitting your uncle and uh oops um (laughs) i don't know what happened how did he get a gun he's blind i don't know (laughs) (laughs) but yeah i mean what a shitty circumstance i don't know why charlie likes him at all yeah (laughs) i'm just trying to think of this movie now from the the rewrite that Mike did and how I think it pays off better where 
Frank actually goes through with it. Like you have the big go get me a cigar moment and it happens. And is that what was in Mike's rewrite? But no, no, no. So just hear out. And then. Okay. So we are getting the shame. He, he, he gets, he gets the check <laughs> that Mike said, like for 4 million that gets him into Harvard. So while Frank was awful and did all these things, his last thing was like a big redemption and changed someone else's life. I don't know. I feel like that's better than the the speech and everything. I agree. But I still want Frank to give the speech from Independence Day. <laughs> <laughs> and then all of the students stand on their desks and say, oh, captain, my captain. <laughs> so the tail end of that speech, why was Philip Seymour Hoffman so, like, distraught? I don't know. Wouldn't like, he be it, like, that, yeah. They're like, I like part of their judgment was, and we're not going to give any credit to George. Yeah. Because yeah, he was like, a rat. What? Yeah. Like, okay, filthy cool. rat. So he, but he, his reaction was that like he got expelled or some shit. I mean, nobody got in trouble. Yeah. There were zero consequences for this whole film. <laughs> That's true. There, there's nothing except the board spits on George. The best I can ascertain is that he ratted on his buddies. And that's the only like ramification that he's going to have. Later that night, they beat him with a bunch of soap and socks in the dorm room. <laughs> yeah, right. Furthermore, if his dad's so influential, why would he even care that his son got in trouble at Baird? Like, he'd be like, whatever, we'll just cut another check and get you into Harvard. Like, if he's such a dick and like... Well, his his dad's an alumni and whatever, and they got to have their, their cool high school that they all went to. So he's protecting the legacy and all that. So I guess what what was the what was his dad trying to do? That's what was I was trying to Was the dad trying to, to get him to rat or to not? It was like I think he's trying to get him to rat. I or like yeah, because when Charlie lightly. Charlie called him at one point on the phone and the dad answered and the dad was like Charlie or uh, George can't see any of his friends for the time being. I so think I, I, I think that implied that he was in trouble. I, I think his dad was kind of coaching him through like what to say like. How to... How to be skeezy. Yeah, diplomatically or sort of politically maneuver it. And then I think leaning on him a bit to rat them out, but I don't know. And I'm trying to understand what grounds the dean would even have to expel them. They both go, I don't know. I didn't I didn't see it. And it's all three dudes and I don't know who they were. Yeah, well, well, if you remember like, at the beginning, so constructed. Like he says, he says that he has all the power. Remember, he makes George leave and he like... He bribes Charlie with Harvard and then says that he has all of the power in this position. I, power position. Yeah, I guess. I, it was a weird dynamic. and You know, sometimes things aren't just good. Sometimes they're just bad. Mm, is that the moral I need to take from this? Yeah, sometimes you can't explain how to write a good movie. <laughs> <laughs> Alrighty. Mm. Well, are we at a good point to start talking about the the trivia and the bits and bobs about the movie. Let's do it. Yeah, I think so. Hoo So, uh, casting-wise, number of people actually auditioned for the role of Charlie Sims. Oh, uh, yeah, pull that pin, Shane. <laughs> pull that pin. <laughs> Can we do a, a removing pin noise? <laughs> All right. What, what, what does a removing pin sound like, Shane? Hoo <laughs> <laughs> Should have seen that one coming. But yes, so Matt Damon, Ben Affleck, Brendan Fraser of The Mummy, uh, Chris Rock, 
And then, of course, Dante Basco and Steven Dorff, who are probably more notable in the okay. 90s. I just want everybody to take a second and imagine this film with Chris Rock. I was just thinking that. I was like, oh, my God. How does that work? Like a funny Charlie Sims. Like he's being, hmm. Like Pacino won a fucking Oscar for this. <laughs> <laughs> uh, you know who was offered the role that Pacino took is Jack Nicholson, which also, it would have been awesome. <laughs> I'm, but that would dude, that would have been such a typecast, though. I'm very yeah. glad it didn't happen. Was this pre or post A Few Good Men? Yeah, I don't know um, if I want. Jack Nicholson smelling women throughout this would have been terrifying. Uh, actually, same year. Yeah. So Nicholson probably went to go do A Few Good Men instead of this. Which, Oof. despite being rated slightly worse on IMDb, might be a better movie. Yeah. Um, hmm. Nicholson is that I ooh it would have been very different for sure yeah I, li- um, I like it a little bit but I don't know if I like it enough to change it yeah Pacino did a lot of research to uh, portray a blind person and definitely he interviewed a lot of people talked to a lot of people um, I, I I feel like this was probably the most interesting part of this movie how he so convincingly played it in every detail I mean, I can only imagine how difficult it must be to act with your eyes without looking at someone like you, you know, are, are looking at anything really. I I found that pretty impressive. Yeah. Um, yeah. He talked a lot with the Association for the Blind and Lighthouse Guild and all that and did a lot of work as we know Pacino to do. Yeah. To get that down. I, I think, I think that was executed pretty well. I, I didn't have yeah. any gripes with his, uh. Yeah. Um, the origin of the Hua. Oh boy. So obviously, Hua being a, you know an army fucking term. Um, <laughs> That's the most army way of saying it. <laughs> I, I'll leave it. At, I'll leave it at that yeah. without going into too much detail. But there was a a, a consultant, military consultant for the movie, and uh, he had Pacino like with his eyes closed uh, reassemble uh, a nineteen eleven. Uh, to presumably to practice for the scene where he does that, and anytime he got it under forty five seconds, that like guy would be like hua, <laughs> and then fucking Pacino just like took that. I guess <laughs> the guy's like, "You owe me. <laughs> I want money." I wonder if that was the way it was said in the late eighties, early nineties, because I mean, I mean I- that's one of the things that makes it stand out is I've I've never heard anyone say that in that way. But it does totally track for an obnoxious, self-important lieutenant colonel. Oh, yes. <laughs> oh, yes. <laughs> I think it's just said in the Pacino accent, and that's what makes it. <laughs> yeah, the guy's like, like, that's bad. not how you say it. That- oh, okay, well, he's going with it. <laughs> <laughs> I can't stop him. I just imagine, um, like, Pacino staying in character, wandering around blindly on set, just going, oh, ah! Oh, ah! <laughs> <laughs> uh... <laughs> So that that phrase did make uh, AFI's 100 Years 100 Movie Quotes list of the <laughs> that top quote? quotations of <laughs> who, 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 top 100 was, quotations in American you had cinema. Me at hello and hua. <laughs> yeah, so we've got a you know here's looking at you kid. Go ahead, make my day. Rosebud, Bond, James Bond, and hua. <laughs> Also, incidentally, we have Attica, Attica, Attica. Yeah. But, um... Well, it's good to see it in context other than just Seinfeld. 
<laughs> so we, I'm sure we made jokes about this at the end of um, uh, Dog Day Afternoon. And I was like, okay, well, there will be the scene where they say it. And then he says it like five minutes in the movie. I'm like, and he says it just once. I'm like, oh, that was, oh, that was it. That's that was what we're making jokes about. Nope. No, it, it, it continued for the <laughs> entire two hours and 40 minutes. Yeah. Um, so that freaking, okay. When we think about Scent of a Woman, the textbook scene is not the fucking tango. You know what I mean? Yeah. Like you, you ask anybody who's seen the movie, it's like, hey, said to a woman, like, what's the best scene? No, they're not like gonna say the tango. They rehearsed that shit for two weeks and they filmed it over three days. <laughs> uh, like so much time was taken for, for what could have just been a thirty second, like, hey, I get it, blind man can tango, cool. Yeah, in, okay, wait, an what, average what, tango at best. <laughs> what is the iconic scene from this? I I mean I don't know. Yeah, because wow. I'm saying like. Uh, I don't know. Like, I feel like none of these really became a climactic scene. Yeah, I mean, not not in the terms of cinema at large, but like the the speech, however irrelevant it was, was memorable. Or the, the actual like suicide slash homicide mm-hmm. scene. <laughs> like, I don't know. I mean, the the, ta- the tango may win by default. <laughs> All right. So this movie earned sixty three million in the U S. Uh, total one thirty million worldwide. Big deal on Rotten Tomatoes. And this was actually um, Al Pacino's finally won, like Leo DiCaprio of an earlier age, an age that Leo DiCaprio would date. Um, (laughs) Al Pacino finally won uh, Academy Award for Best Actor. He had been nominated four times and finally won with this movie, which, to be honest, I think is deserved. He was, this movie would not be anything without him, I think. Um, but yeah, very, very successful. Uh, according to Wikipedia, some quote, criticized the film for its length. Uh, Variety's Todd McCarthy said it goes on nearly an hour too long. Agreed. And the two character conceit doesn't warrant a two and a half hour running time. So that, that does track. But with that said, let's move on to the critics that really count. Uh, the people here in the room, let's rank it amongst the movies we've seen. So this is number 49 for us. Where do we all put this, June? Um. Okay. Hold on. Let me look at the list real yeah, quick. Pull it up. Oh shit. Where is the other Pacino movie? <laughs> <laughs> you put Dog Day Afternoon at six. Oh no! Nowhere near that. <laughs> uh I Proof? think I'm gonna put this at. <laughs> God damn. <laughs> I think I'm gonna put this at number six. Or fuck, twenty six. Sorry, I want to put this at number twenty six between Ratatouille and Slingblade. Uh, it's just not that tight, and it's. Uh, I mean, it's a good movie. I enjoyed it. I enjoyed the. I enjoyed Pacino. I'll say that. Yeah. Um, but it doesn't make up for the kind of loose, loose writing in general, and I think it sits at that just under mediocre, aka Ratatouille, uh, part of my list. Mm. The Ratatouille line, side of the next yeah. Civil War. <laughs> Literally half. Uh, Shane, where do you put it? So, um... <laughs> right after Ratatouille. <laughs> Very similar. Uh, the movie that was really good, I'd say, for the first hour and a half. And then you get to the <laughs> what should be the climax of the film. And then they sit down on the couch and go find a Ferrari. And you're like, oh, God. And <laughs> so, like, 
Um, I am going to put it at 23, just above Ratatouille <laughs> under Fiddler on the Roof. I was going to go lower, but the King's Speech stopped me and I had to like stop right there and then go up. So yeah, that's where I'm going to put it at 23, pushing Ratatouille down. Oh, yeah. Better than Rat Chef. <laughs> <laughs> if only we could lick our lips like he does on a podcast <laughs> some, get some good foley work and uh, mix that in everywhere yeah. alright Mike where do you put it did he say that at one point one of his MOS was military intelligence and, and field artillery and infantry no so he worked for the G2 of, so like intelligence. Okay. In that case, I put it right below the Bourne Ultimatum. Because <laughs> I'd rather watch somebody really in military intelligence. What if he so was field artillery? Uh, that's number 35. 35? Oh, wow. Wow. I mean, I don't blame you. <laughs> I mean, I, really I heard don't. Bourne Ultimatum and I knew it was low. <laughs> <laughs> um, ooh, where do I put it? For me. So like I said, I feel like this is like uh, extended family with Rain Man and King's Speech, and both of those were better than this. Yeah. And I can't put it ahead of the Iron Giant, so I'm going to put it at number 28 between 12 monkeys and Who's Afraid of Virginia Wolf. Mm-hmm. That about tracks. Very middle of the pack. All I could yeah. think of is when he walks into the room, someone goes, Jesus Christ, that's Frank Slade. <laughs> <laughs> Big <laughs> project Sniffstone. <laughs> you know that that probably was the case at the Thanksgiving dinner when he walked in like, "God, oh, Jesus Christ, Frank's here." <laughs> it's Frank Slade. Playing Moby. I'll say for a blind guy, he could throw hands. He was like choking people out. Is that a ranger choke? Like, like it's any different than any other, like putting your hand around someone's throat. Well, I mean, it's, that tracks with the army is naming everything a ranger or something. You've, you've eaten a ranger bar or two, haven't you? I don't know what you're talking about. Or those hua bars. I have amnesia from most of my past. From that time when Shane was juggling grenades. <laughs> they were just training grenades, but it didn't take much for him. I wasn't a colonel. I wasn't even invited. <laughs> Alrighty, stupid backstory. Juggling grenade accident. <laughs> I know, right? And the war hero. And what kills me is if something had gone right, he would have just died. I don't know how you go blind with a, of, a grenade. Of all the stories of like disgraced war veteran and a freak grenade juggling accident, <laughs> and the the worst part is they threw. A prime opportunity away because the point of that story wasn't well, that he was juggling Al Pacino grenade. didn't throw a prime opportunity away. Let me tell you <laughs> <Nice>. that. So, ha, um, <laughs> the point of that scene wasn't that he was an idiot juggling grenades. Is that he had a drinking problem and like mm. was drinking a during work and very enough to like really fuck with his cognitive ability but that goes all to the wayside as we watch Al pa- like imagine Al Pacino fucking juggling grenades <laughs> <laughs> yelling hoo as people are like dear god that's a live grenade <laughs> oh, take <man>. cover <laughs> uh, 
That story was stupid, man. Oh my god. <laughs> also, the way that grenades work, like, it's physically impossible. <laughs> you can't be juggling a grenade without a pin in you it. You would see the spoon and, like, fly off and be like, oh god! <laughs> Jesus yeah, Christ. About three seconds worth of juggling. <laughs> Ish. Anyway. <laughs> yeah, give or take. It's not an exact science. Um... So, next week for episode 50, finally... Wait, we've got to do the recommendation. Oh, shit, that's right. Well, do you recommend watching it? Um, I'm going to say no. Hmm. Get the uh, get the highlight reel. Mike? Um, No. That was boring and too long. Yeah. Shane? Um, I do, just because it has moments, and those moments are good when they're there. It's just they're all tied together poorly. Um, and just so, like me, you can now live with the context of Hua. <laughs> like, <laughs> yeah, but no one besides us would even care about that. Context. Well, now when you like see Pacino in an Adam Sandler film dancing for Dunkin' Donuts, you can go, "Ah, oh, I remember that line. Wow, you have fallen far." <laughs> yeah, now you understand our Dog Day Afternoon episode. Yep. Yeah. <laughs> Do we understand so our now dog day you afternoon have to episode? watch the film so you have context for our dog day afternoon episode? <laughs> Wait, none of us had watched this movie at the time. Did we not have context on dog day afternoon? It was all part of the plan, Jack. <laughs> it's just like you watching Kill Bill Volume Two without having seen the first one. <laughs> Kill Bill's gonna blow your mind. June, did did you say whether you recommend this or not? So it's very rare for me to say no, but no. Like I've I've said yes to a lot of shittier movies, but honestly, there's just no substance to this. Like the the extent of what you should watch is like the Oscars where uh mm-hmm. Pacino was nominated and they show you that little glimpse of like a, a scene from the movie. Like, they would that's, show that's all you need. Yeah, I just picture it. They would show the uh the intro where Sims meets Pacino in the house that's the scene they would show and then they cut and everyone would start applauding and be like and the oscar goes to um alrighty, so next week episode 50 i think we get our first t- taste of benedict cabbage patch in <laughs> the imitation game Ooh. which is a movie i've seen and i think will be really interesting to talk about with this group so many turning uh, jokes Oh, Mike. <laughs> Brace yourself, Mike. Oh, boy. I can't wait to learn all about the turning test. I knew this day was coming. <laughs> so do we do our special episode before or after 50? Did we decide on SLC Punk or Robot Jocks? It was SLC, I thought. <laughs> it was SLC Punk from our previous special for continuity's sake. Yeah. I think I'd like to do that. Yeah. After so the after we 50? do fifty and then mm. and then a special, or do we take a uh, quick break before our fiftieth episode? We'll be right back. <laughs> I don't know. Uh, Next week uh. you will either hear <laughs> uh, either hear SLC Punk or the Imitation Game. <laughs> Two sides of the same coin. All right. Well, thanks for joining. As much as it may hurt your ears to hear us all say "hua." Um, we hopefully will see you next time. Ooh, ah. I was waiting for it. <laughs> <laughs>